This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the fur bearers. We're talking old growth logging this week. But Mike, we all know old growth logging is bad. Why spend time on it? Well, Mike, simply put, because we don't all know old growth logging is bad, as per the ongoing old growth logging. The subject has been in the news a great deal lately, particularly with the most recent blockade and standoffs at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. In reading the ongoing coverage of this subject, I recognized that the media wasn't spending as much time on the background. Why are old growth trees different or more valuable than others? Why is it so important for endangered species that these trees be protected? And if they're so important, why isn't species at risk legislation protecting them? I connected with Charlotte Daw of the Wilderness Committee in BC to dig into the basics of old growth forests and logging to answer these questions and others and show off some of the tools currently available to folks who want to have their voices heard. Let's get started. I guess the the important place to start is what an old growth forest is. I mean, mm. is this just a forest with big trees? Is this a specific type of tree? Or is this a specific region in BC and elsewhere? What What is an old growth forest? So old growth forests are actually defined differently depending on who you talk to. Um, there's a couple ways you can think about what an old growth forest is. One is obviously old trees. Old trees don't necessarily mean big trees. You could have old trees that are in a swamp that are, you know, in their, you know, 900-year-old range, and they're going to be small because they're waterlogged and they're not growing very big, or in, like, high alpine sites where the growing season is very short. They might be very old, but they might not look very big. Um, so that, but that's still an old-growth forest, right? And then you have, like, the high-productive, oldest, biggest trees. That's what a lot of people think about when you think about BC's old growth forest. It's those massive cedars, spruces, uh, yep. you know, meters wide, highly productive, um, spaced out canopy because through time they've spaced um, spaced themselves out. So you have like one yep. big tree every half kilometer. Um, that's kind of the forest that we that I like to think about as uh, the old growth forests that we're talking about in BC that are at risk. And of the old growth forests in BC that are at risk, of the oldest and the biggest, we have less than 1% left. So if wow. you think about old growth forests, um, which is like generally over 600 years old, uh, of that, of the oldest and the biggest, we have 1% left, less than 1% left. And these are, they're, they're highly desirable, as you said, because of their production value. So in one tree, you get more products yeah. is effectively the, the solution. Exactly. Or the, the and the, and the wood you get is uh, extremely like sought after by different um, logging companies for different products. Like, uh, for instance, cedar from old growth forests in BC goes to shingles. They make great shingles huh. uh, for rich people in Florida. So, uh, <laughs> very specific. Yeah, so we are cutting down our old growth trees for rooftop wow. shingles. So. so when you hear, and I, I'm, this is just my observation is when I hear about this, I'm normally thinking, well, we need these to build homes and infrastructure mm -hmm. and our society will falter without yeah. this. 
Uh, and that's not really mm. the case is what I'm hearing. It's yeah. it's very, it's not, these are the trees we need. It's just, those are the trees they exactly. want. Exactly, totally. And um, to expand on that, uh, on the island, most of the Vancouver Island logging um, is destined for raw log exports. So in the interior, yep. it's a little bit of a different story. We have more mills, but a bunch of mills closed down decades ago. And since that, it becomes more profitable for logging corporations to ship their raw logs overseas. So we're not even, we're not even processing them here. Um, so obviously we're not using them in our homes here if we're not even, we're just shipping them as logs overseas. So, um, yeah, yeah. so that's kind of where we're at and we still import a bunch of wood also from places like Asia and stuff to build our our home. So it's, it's very, it's a very confusing production supply chain. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's what I think is odd. So right now, Canada, um, is in the midst of a, uh, you know, a, a wood boom, so to speak. Uh, lumber prices have skyrocketed, and that is both due to demand and the issues at the border right now as a result of the pandemic. And I believe there's also talks of new tariffs. I saw some headlines, but that's a softwood lumber-specific uh, imports tariff uh, situation. So what happens, I guess, just to sort of move it along, to speculate, what happens if we don't harvest old growth? Uh, are, you know, is our economy going to come grinding to a halt? Are hundreds of people going to lose jobs? It's, it's, it's hard to tell based on what you read in the media. So from sort of a, uh, a conservative estimate, what would be the, the negative impact Mm -hmm. of not harvesting this 1% that I love this question because I think we need to talk about this more and more. Um, okay. So let's say they stop logging old growth. Well, the first thing that's going to happen is that corporation is going to make less money because they're not getting the most valuable trees that they can. They're going to hate that because every corporation in a capitalist society needs to increase profit year after year. Um, does that necessarily mean that, you know, entire towns will be laid off? No, because there is second growth that can be logged. We have to think about who uh, the forest industry is working for. And from 2000, the year 2000 to 2015, 64,000 jobs were lost in the forest industry, or sorry, 45,000 jobs were lost in the forest sector throughout BC, right? And they did an analysis um, and they found out that 64% of that was due to the logging companies themselves replacing people with automation and technology. And whereas uh, like per, like forest protection was 10%. Wow. So if we're to break down like why we're losing jobs, 10% is due to trying to protect ecosystems. Whereas 64% is due to the companies themselves laying off people at any moment they can, because if they can replace that person with a piece of technology, they're going to make more profit yep. at the end of it. So like right now our forest industry is not working for communities it's definitely not working for ecosystems we're pushing species extinct uh we're logging the last of our old growth um and it seems like the only thing they're working for is the corporations themselves so i think we really have to reimagine how we want to operate in our forests and what i would love to see is a push towards community man managed and owned forests where workers own the uh, the means of production where workers own the company, mm-hmm. they get a say in the, they get a say in the company, they're employed uh, locally. So all of a sudden 
um, the forester, when the forester cutting is in your community, you're going to care more if you're logging in your watershed or you're logging in that last patch of old growth, you know. Um, and that's why I think place-based uh, industries are going to benefit everyone um, in the long run and the environment as well, because people don't want to do harm to the environment that is around them. That was a very long-winded answer. But it's great. I am curious, though, as to what kind of response you get when you use the language own the mean of production or return means of production to uh, the workers. Because traditionally, those who tend to lean to the right or exist south of our border hear the name Marx uh, or anything related to it and go running. Is this reimagining the industry in such a way that it would fulfill an ideology or is it reimagining the industry in a way that would protect the environment and the industry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, that those are one of my solutions. I, it's not, I'm not saying that it has to be this way. I'm saying that's an option. Um, We could also just have better rules for industries that want to operate here. So if you have a corporation that wants to operate here, we could operate where they have to, prove that they won't do harm before they get the green light. Whereas like we play a very, very um, like uh, reactive game. We give them a green light and then we're like, Oh my gosh, you cut down all the trees and species are going extinct and we have to make like clean up your mess. That's how we do it uh, currently. So we could also just change it to where you have to prove you're capable of operating in a safe and healthy way. And then you can do that. So there's I like the thing I love about this is I just gave you two examples of how we yep. transform, right? And I feel like people really—that's uh, where they—that's where they—they they struggle with reimagining. And it's totally possible we can totally do it. Um, and it will benefit communities, and it will benefit um, the environment as well. Communities won't be um, won't be their 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 fate won't be tied to an industry that is they're getting out of dodge one way or the other. It just depends on how much force they take before they do. So all of a sudden, we can have communities that control their fate more. That makes a lot of sense. And it also means that when there are conflicts within, there are more likely to be uh, amicable solution or or sort of um, problem-solving mechanisms in place too, I would imagine, Mm -hmm. uh, when you start looking community-based as opposed Mm -hmm. to industry-run. Something you mentioned, uh, and I'm going to share something and then see if it's familiar in the forestry. I know in Alberta, there have been many, many issues with speculative oil drilling or small oil wells that companies have set up. And they've said to a landowner, for example, we're going to put this well here, we're going to pay you for it, and when we're done, we'll clean it up. Mm And then when they're done, the company goes bankrupt intentionally and the well remains. And the government of Alberta has had to try and figure out solutions to that because you've got just average homeowners with an, you know, a potentially dangerous environmental piece of infrastructure in their yard, pretty much. Is that what we're seeing in BC as well, where it's this kind of, yeah, we have rules, but there are so many ways around them or there's such a lack of enforcement that it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's similar to BC's forestry industry for sure. For some of the impacts that logging leaves, like the roads, they yep. have they actually aren't required to clean up those roads and to restore those roads. So we have a legacy of forestry roads in BC that are literally altering predator prey dynamics in in, mm-hmm. in ecosystems. That's how dense they are. And then we also have this little clause that I 
is my nemesis in FERPA, so the Forest Range and Practice Act, that says you cannot unduly impact timber supply. So for instance, let's say BC had the strongest species at risk act and it protected all of the habitat. It protected all of the habitat on provincial land for a species at risk. FERPA, this clause trumps every other law in BC. So yeah, you can protect as much habitat as you want up till the point where it unduly impacts timber supply. And that word unduly impacts timber supply is very, very um, vague and not really mm-hmm. defined. So until we can until we can get rid of that clause in FERPA, it's going to be very, very, very hard to protect biodiversity in the way we need to, because in some cases it would be illegal to do that because we'd be violating FERPA. It sounds like language that has been in place for 300 years, frankly. Yeah. It, it was built, like, this language was built for forestry to run the province. And that's why they have, is because this law was created to basically give the land to forest corporations in BC. That's, yeah. Let's talk about second growth. This is something that you've said, uh, and it's another term that I think gets used, but a lot of us may not understand what it means. So we have old growth, which you've explained as growth of a certain type in a certain age, and we recognize its role in habitat um, is very significant. And I believe there are some endangered species linked to old growth as well. Um, So I might get you to speak about that, but I also want to talk about what the second growth is and how that works, because... You know, again, this is I what I know of forestry, despite our conversations, is grade school level, you know, wood is a renewable resource. You cut down one tree and you plant another, and then you can cut down another tree, you know, ad nauseum. Yeah. But it's it's not quite that simple. Yeah. Uh so how would you explain sort of that old growth versus new growth? And then we'll get mm-hmm. into the 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 ecosystem and wildlife. Mm-hmm. So, well, we've been logging in, you know, this province for hundreds of years now. And so all of that, like those old cut blocks and those old, those places that they've been logging are starting to regrow to the age of about 40 and 100, right? So we have stands that have been cut um, a long, long time ago, and they're growing now to a point where they're about 40 to 100 years old. And that is what we call second growth. And in that range is a good time to log. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not getting into the old growth age. It, it's, uh, it's still big enough timber to be valuable. And, you know, operating on this principle that everyone likes to think about is, well, we need wood, right? And, it, you know, for the most part, uh, that, that's true, not at the rate we use it. Um, and I think we should do more with it anyways, but, um, yes. Okay. If we need to log, we need to log second growth for sure. Um, and we need to value add to that wood. So that means like when you log, you create local jobs, you employ local people, you ship it to, uh, people who will make that into wood for houses locally, all that stuff really adds value to the wood that you're logging. And all of a sudden you're employing more people from fewer trees. Um, anyways. So yeah, so second growth is forests that have previously been cut well, hundreds, hundred to 40 to 60 years ago and they're regrown and ready to be logged again um, versus primary forests, which are forests that have never been logged. So yeah. Okay. And those are the ones that we really need to protect. Yes. I yeah. understand then. 
And the role it plays in the ecosystem and wildlife, and I'm going to be a little intentionally naive here uh, for the sake of the question, but does it matter to a squirrel, for example, if the tree is 200 years old or 50 years old? And how does this then impact endangered species? Sort of A, intentionally naive, B, follow through. So a squirrel, you can see a squirrel like living on a fence post. Uh, A squirrel is what we would call like a generalist species. So there's sort of like the crows and the pigeons of the world um, that, you know, are quick thinking, smart, adaptable, resourceful. They're able to um, find different niches and fill them within an ecosystem using what what they have around them. Um, Now, that's not true for specialist species. Specialist species are ones that evolve very tightly with a certain ecosystem and they have a sort of niche, uh, like a, like a sort of a role or a job that, um, is very narrow and they actually have evolved so tightly with other things in the ecosystem that taking away one of those supporting features would ultimately doom the species. So that's kind of what we've seen with spotted owls, which are probably Canada's most endangered species. Uh, There are two breeding pairs left in BC, and that is it in Canada. Um, Or sorry, a single breeding pair, two owls, maybe one juvenile in BC, as as far as we know. Um, So they evolved in old growth forests. When I say evolved, like they literally adapted to live within this old, huge canopy that's spaced out. They have room to fly underneath and swoop in and hunt underneath. Um, Their chicks, when they uh, have babies, fly. um, They have to fly, I think it's over 10 kilometers away uh, into another old growth site that has um, like rocky talus slopes nearby. That's also indicative of old growth. You'll have this spaced out rocky you know, uh, forest floor within. And then the deciding factor on if they stay there is they'll call out. And if they hear another spotted owl nearby and they'll stay, if they call out and they don't hear another spotted owl nearby, they'll keep going. And what's happened is that spotted owls are flying further and further, but without habitat, they do the call and there's no other owls around because it's all been logged. And then they keep flying and they've literally found owls like, baby like juvenile owls that are dead from exhaustion from just like going and going and going and they just can't find the habitat that they need so yeah that's nuts yeah and it's sort of a similar story with caribou um in the old growth and the high elevation Mm -hmm. and so it's i um one of my biggest pet peeves is when i talk i've talked to a government biologist before and they've they've said you know if only like uh if only spotted owls weren't so like stupid and i'm like they, they actually evolved in a brilliant way. Like who would have thought these huge old growth forests would be logged by these machines that are unimaginable, like to a species. So they evolved in an amazing way. It's just, we've destroyed ecosystems in a terrible way. So, yeah. And that's, um, that is very much, I think what Einstein meant when you, when he said, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, mm, yeah, um, yeah. right. Like, yeah. Interesting example, too, for listeners, uh, is the Canada lynx. Uh, I know in the northern U.S., I believe maybe Montana or Idaho, 
uh, they were talking about protecting the Canada links because of the impact of climate change. So the three that that triangle of essential specialist behavior for them is their big paws that let them stand on the snow mm -hmm. to hunt snowshoe hares. Mm -hmm. Very specific. And if you remove the hares or the snow, those big cats suddenly have a whole lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're saying, well, with climate change, mm -hmm. we have to be very aware because, mm -hmm. yeah, there's less snow. Mm -hmm. That simple. Yeah. Uh, and now they can't hunt as efficiently and the whole ecosystem gets thrown out of mm -hmm. whack. So it's it's scary. But I guess then the, the you know, populist uh, follow-up to that or the capitalist follow-up to that is why don't we just let the birds die mm -hmm. if there's only two left as tragic as that may be and make oodles of money on the forest mm -hmm. uh, you're making a lot of faces as Am I I? Oh my God. for for listeners <laughs> I, didn't even know I, was. I can't even control my face anymore oh man i gotta get better at that um <laughs> to be fair I, I i was i was needling a little bit there i was needling. oh no i lost track of what you said oh yeah why don't we let species go extinct i think um there's like multiple ways you could answer this there's like the inherent right to like uh save species that you've doomed it's like we're the reason they're at risk yep. it there should be no other reason but because it's our responsibility because we did this to them we should do everything we can to save them um but this is also like, what do we want and as a future? Like if we can't save species now, I feel like it will be a, a very bad precedent set that like, oh, well, if a species is going extinct, we must let them because like, that's just the way it has to be. That's gonna, right now we have, you know, a few species of, up for extinction in Canada. It's gonna be, it's gonna get crazy soon. It's gonna be hundreds, thousands and into the millions. And so we might say, well, why not just let this one go extinct now? But um, if we set that precedent, that means millions of species will go extinct uh, because it means that we're not going to try to save them. And so, you know, when you rationalize, well, it's just one species going extinct. Um, can you then rationalize a million? I don't think so. So we have to, we have to treat every species like, um, like we need to save them. And the clear follow-up is, isn't there endangered species legislation that would protect them from this logging activity, Charlotte? Oh my goodness. Oh, I love this question. Okay. So Canada has a species at risk act. If you were to read the act, you'd be like, Hey, this isn't so bad. Um, but when it gets applied, governments have found very, very huge gaping loopholes in the law. Uh, the federal government gives responsibility to the provinces and territories to protect the species on their land. So non-federal land. So, um, you know, the federal government would look at BC and say, okay, BC, that old growth forest has a dozen species at risk in it, but that's on provincial land. So uh, you're up. We're going to give you the first chance of protecting them there. Um, and if your laws fail to effectively protect those species, then we're going to have to step in. Um, BC has no law to protect species at risk. So we fail every time. We are terrible. We have the most species at risk in Canada out of every province and territory. Um, and when we fail, the federal government should be there to enforce protection like the species at risk law was written. But they are very, very, very reluctant to do so. And they've only ever done it twice. So. Um, what ends up happening is that Canada and BC have been in this like synchronized combative dance since 2003, where they dodge responsibility from the law and throw it back onto the other person. And then 
what ends up happening is nothing gets done and species die. And that's where we're at. Yeah. And of note, I believe it was in the 2017 election following that uh, political or NDP leader and premier John Horgan uh, had establishing species at risk uh, legislation as a mandate and following his second election in the middle of a pandemic that seems to have disappeared yeah. and I will not offer commentary on that I am just sharing the facts um, so I guess then the next question becomes what are we supposed to do I mean I think that's a you know you in just the span of a casual conversation made multiple suggestions of how we could subtly or significantly shift this industry of what legislation can be used. Like all of the tools are available, mm -hmm. but there seems to be a lack of political yeah. will. So what are the next steps for individuals, organizations, mm -hmm. uh, and so on to try and protect old growth and to try and get legislative solutions mm -hmm. to be used? I think part of the reason that nothing has worked in BC on the environmental front for pressuring John Horgan is because he just feels so secure in his uh, position without the environmental vote. Like he's like, you know, I think he thinks that he doesn't need us. He can like totally blow it on the environment, but do other social things that are great. And so he'll get, he'll get by anyways. And I, I hate the fact that that is kind of true. Um, and so, yeah, so I think we really need to just show up in higher numbers and scare him at the end of the day, what this government wants is reelection. And if we can get majority of BC people up in arms, honestly, about this, they will have no choice but to listen. It's always when the majority is on board, when they're going to start to really take these things seriously. And so I think what's happening in the BC forest right now and bringing the fight to media around the world it's like an international story now is just showing how dire it is and what people are willing to do to save these forests and um i mean john horgan can try to remain silent as i mean he has so far but he's not going to get away with that for much longer uh the more people that become involved and speak up for old growth and species at risk the better and bringing it to your mlas uh you know your elected officials um bring it to them, say that you want old growth logging stop. These are all things that at the end of the day, I think is going to be the tipping point of whether he listens to the people who elected him or the corporations. So that's, uh, yeah, that's where I think we're at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting active and wilderness committee has some great simple actions to take and recommendations on that. And there are other groups across British Columbia and, and frankly, Canada working on this too. Uh, so while you and I have a, a fun time chatting about it, people can look for many places to get this. Absolutely. Uh, I do just want to mention we have a tool on our website. It's uh, the Old Growth Escalator, and it's an action tool. And basically, it starts you on the path of becoming an old growth protector. So the first step will awesome. be a simple thing, like an action tool. The second step might be a phone call. The third step might be to meet with your MLA, and then so on and so forth, as long as you're involved, like interested sitting again to the next step we will take your hand and boom move you up that ladder so and i was just gonna say the meet with your mla for old growth request a meeting call now like i'm looking at these buttons on the site right mm -hmm. now and i can click right now and it pops up with um you know what information to use it's got the talking points and then it's a one-click letter same thing for the call now and request a meeting. I'm familiar with the tool you're using, and they're they're really easy to use mm -hmm. tools yeah. uh, on both sides. 
So, for, and uh, that's, I think, really important as well, some social media stuff. The other two quick things I wanted to touch on, one, I don't think it's been too much of an issue, but is there anything in media reporting of this that people need to be wary of? Um, in terms of wildlife reporting, we're often talking about sensationalism and specific language that's used by the media. Mm -hmm. But in this, there's a little more politics and a little less guesswork, I think. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to see if there is something uh, that's happening in the media we need to be aware you know, of. The only thing I like, okay, so I feel like there's a bunch of blockades happening now on Vancouver Island to stop old growth logging. Mm. The media reporting there took a long time to to get there and to report on the story. But once they did, it's been decent. Um, okay. uh, they're not really telling the story of species at risk yet, though. Uh, but I'm hoping to push them in that direction and to talk, not push them in that direction, but to al also share that side of the story. Yeah. But I will say, like, um, I've had experiences with trying to protect species at risk in the past and having mainstream news organizations um, own, literally only telling the one side of the story. This really happened with Caribou when a, a partnership yes. agreement that was indigenous led uh, was on the table. Um, I would say 95% of the reporting was this is going to be a job killer. This is awful. Like we can't do this. And I would <laughs> you know, I would every single time I would see one of these articles, I'd send the reporter, hey, by the way, this is what I see wrong with this article. Can you please show this side of the story? Nothing. You know, and that I can't tell you how frustrating it is to see something and know that there's this huge other side of the story that they're just not sharing. And it's so frustrating because so many people still rely on those mainstream organizations. They don't go digging a little bit deeper. And yeah. that creates a rhetoric for people who want to be updated, want to be educated on the, on the topic, but you know, don't know where else to find the, the other opinions. So, yeah. Yeah, that can be tricky. And that's, um, there is one case where the headline and this is adjacent, but uh, similar, the headline was coyote attacks or coyotes attack dog. I think the second or third sentence of the story was that the dog ran away from its owner and chased the coyotes. So I said, like, I wrote a letter to the the reporter and the editor, and I said, look, your article describes this as a dog attacking coyotes, and your headline calls it a coyote yeah. attack. Can you please update that? And I got back out, well, if you'd like to contribute a letter to the editor, we'll consider publishing it. And as a former journalist, I know it's not pleasant to get those letters and phone calls, but... Big but. There's very clearly sometimes a problem. And I think it's it behooves people to keep calling it out as mm -hmm. you do uh, when it happens. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a small thing, but it's huge, right? It, it, it shapes people's... Yeah. Now, you know, a lot of people are just headline readers. So they're going to read that and be like, oh my gosh, like I coyotes, this is awful. We have to be careful. Yeah. And I think particularly with the the uh, blockades, and I, I don't want to get into it because I simply do not have a deep enough understanding of it. And there's a lot of other social and colonialist things that need to be considered in those conversations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're not sitting down and reading those articles, um, you're not getting the story yeah. from the headlines yeah. at this point. They're very involved and convoluted at mm. times. Uh, you know, who said what, who's doing what, which side from what, and so yeah. on. Uh, so at the very least, read more, not yeah. less, should be, I think, our our, our message. Edward. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the mapping tool. Uh, I believe we've talked about this before, but I thought we'd give it another mm -hmm. summary before we uh, wrap up, because it's a very interesting and important tool. That's that would be awesome. Okay. 
thank you for uh, bringing this up because I was going to forget about talking about it. But this is one of the one of the things I'm the most proud of out uh, in my work here at Wilderness Committee. But it's essentially an online mapping tool that anyone from the public can use. What you're going to find on this tool, it sort of is a story, and you go down and you scroll, and eventually you'll hit maps. Now, the first map is a map of all of BC, and it will show you uh, all proposed, newly proposed industry operations within federally listed and protected species at risk habitat. So let's say you're really concerned about marbled murrelet and you live on the island and you want to say, you know what, I'm worried. I see logging trucks. I want to make sure they're not logging marbled murrelet habitat. You scroll into where you are and you'll be able to see every cup block proposed in their habitat. Now it maps cut blocks and then it maps oil and gas facilities and associated activities. And so, and they're all, this isn't a historical map. It doesn't show historical logging. It just shows stuff that are new. So you still have a chance to stop yep. it. And a lot of these projects, when they're at the very, very, very beginning planning phase, if you can get out ahead of them, you have a very, a, a way more higher chance, way more higher. Wow, Charlotte. You have, a, you have a much higher chance of stopping those projects. This, so a tool like this is actually how we found and stopped the Argonaut Creek cut blocks in caribou habitat. So I wanted to give that to everyone in BC to use if they're worried about a species at risk. I want to thank Charlotte for her time and remind you to check out some of the tools the Wilderness Committee has developed to help you speak out for old growth trees like the amazing Lorax you are. Just visit wildernesscommittee.org to get started or check them out on social media for more. It's been a while since we released an episode, so I'm going to remind you to go back and listen to my curse-laden episode 10 of this season if you didn't catch why there's been a break. I also want to remind you, we'll be releasing episodes every other week now with occasional uploads for special features or items I find amusingly essential to share. You can follow me on Instagram at Howie Michael or like Defender Radio on Facebook for more updates about the show and to get in touch with me about any questions, ideas, or comments you may have. Thank you all. And until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Mm -hmm.